Welcome, y'all. My name is John Trapp, and the senior pastor here at Christ the King. It's so good to be with y'all this morning. At Christ the King, we believe that God's word tells all of us, not just folks outside the church, but folks inside the church, tells all of us that we are sinners in, with a great need, with a great need for a savior. And so one of the things that we do at Christ the King every week is we gather around God's word at this point in our worship service, and we consider the Bible's claims that we actually have a great Savior for our need. There's a great Savior for our need as sinners. And so as we come to him and as we come to his word, let's posture our hearts and hear what he has to say to people like us. Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to read from Acts chapter 8 at first and then chapter 9. Uh, it's, if you have a black Bible next to you, you can turn to page 916 if you want to read along there. I'm going to read uh, one verse from chapter 8 because this is the last we see about this guy named Saul of Tarsus. And then the story, his story kind of sits for a bit and then we pick it up again in chapter 9 with this very important moment in his life and in the life of the church. So let's read from Acts chapter 8 verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Chapter 9 but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. 
For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you who search our hearts and know us, you know all the truth about us, that you would help us uh, in our need to see the truth about you that we find here in your word. And we pray that in doing so, you might help us to understand more deeply the grace that you have for sinners like us. And we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're talking about conversion as we look at maybe the most famous story of a Christian conversion in the Bible, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And I want you to know, conversion is actually at the heart of Christ the King's mission. It's, it's a huge part of what we are about. Our stated mission is reaching Houston for Christ and renewing lives by grace. So we, we want to see people in our city, in our neighborhoods, who don't yet know Jesus, be reached for Jesus, and for their lives to be changed, for them to be converted into a life of following him. And the reason that we do this is because we actually believe it's the most important thing someone can do. The most important thing somebody can do is to give their life to Jesus and follow him. And so what I want you to see in this passage today is three main points about this conversion of Saul. First, he's the unlikeliest convert. The unlikeliest convert. Second, what converts him? Or you could say what converts us? And then third, so what? So the unlikeliest convert, what converts us, so what? So Saul is, he's a totally unlikely convert on a lot of levels. Okay, so sub points, okay, ready? Doing some sub points here. He's an unlikely convert in, on an academic level. He's an unlikely convert on an emotional level. And he's an unlikely convert on a moral level. So let's talk about Saul academically for a second. Saul was from this place called Tarsus. And in the first century, Tarsus was a global center of education and learning. It'd be like College Station. No, I'm just kidding. But it, it would be like, it'd be like Princeton or Oxford. Like that's where Saul is from. And he's from this place that, that everyone would have identified as this, this great haven of academics. But not only that, Saul was a great academician. He was a Pharisee. And if you've grown up in the church and you've heard about the Pharisees, sometimes it's easy for us to kind of create a caricature in our mind of what the Pharisees were like. But, ugh, the Pharisees, they never get it right. And they're kind of, you know, they've got like horns on their foreheads and they're just kind of, you know, they don't get it. No one would have thought that about the Pharisees in the first century. The Pharisees were committed and they were intellectuals and they knew their stuff. In fact, most Pharisees, and very likely Saul, given his academic pedigree, would have had the first five books of the Bible memorized, the Torah. Kids, have y'all looked at Leviticus lately? That's some commitment. That's impressive. That's the kind of academician that Saul is. But not only is he a Pharisee, he's like a rising star among the Pharisees because he's studying under this man named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was, we see him actually earlier in, in the book of Acts when they're discussing what to do with Peter and John. And Gamaliel is, 
really influential in this kind of tribunal that's held of the Pharisees and religious advisors of the day because he was like the most respected. He was the most intellectual. And Saul is his protege. Saul's kind of getting his PhD from this guy. And he's from the most academic place in the world. Saul is an academic. And because of that, it makes him a very unlikely convert. Because every morning, Saul would have woken up and he would have said the Shema, which is Hebrew for hear. And every morning, a good Pharisee and a good Jew would have woken up and they would have said the Hebrew Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6.5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, we as Christians believe that. But we also believe that there's some nuance to that because we believe that God is one God. There is only one God. And yet, God is also three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So when Jesus shows up and he is worshiping his father, but also claiming, I'm the son of God, and if you've, seen the, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying these kinds of things about himself, and it's one of the reasons that the religious folks of that day rejected him. Because it was a new academic par- paradigm for them. It was a new way to understand who God is. And this is what Jesus does to anyone who would follow him, is he has to to convert us on an academic intellectual level. And that's threatening to us, threatening to anyone. And I, I want you to listen to, this is a man named Richard Lewinton who graduated from Harvard undergrad, PhD from Columbia. He's now a professor of biology at Harvard University. And he's a big spokesman for evolutionary biology. And uh, what I'm going to read to you, he wrote, and he's explaining in this why, why he and his colleagues are what's called materialists, which means they reject the supernatural, they believe that all there is to life is what we can, you know, what we can measure, what we can see. And so listen to, listen to what he says when it comes to bumping up against things in his scientific practice that he can't actually explain. What do you do with that? He says, our willingness, our, he's talking about his colleagues and himself, our, our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. We take the side of science in spite of science's failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life. We take the side of science in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community of unsubstantiated just so stories. It's just so. We take the side of science because we have a prior commitment. This is so honest. I just want you to hear how honest he's being about his worldview. We have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. Why? Materialism is absolute because we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So what Dr. Lewinton is saying is, listen, there's all kinds of things that in the scientific community we bump up against and sometimes we have to say, it's just so. It's just like that because that's just the way it is. And there's not a lot of scientific explanation under it. But he says the reason that we have to do that is because we have a prior commitment to materialism. And if we drop that, that lets a divine, a divine foot in the door. In other words, 
if we begin to believe in a God behind all of this, it's going to kind of wreck our worldview on an intellectual level. It's going to reorient everything. And that's what's true here for Saul. He's converted on an academic level that's going to reorient the way that he understands who God is and who he is. But not only that, Saul is an unlikely convert on an emotional level. And this is important for us to get. Saul hates Christians. He hates Christians. The first time we see him in the book of Acts, he's overseeing the stoning of this man named Stephen. And a stoning would have looked like digging a big hole. I don't know if you know how stonings work. Dig a big hole. You put somebody in the hole. And have you ever seen someone get buried like at the beach, you know, you put your hands down, they kind of bury you back. That's what they would have done. They would have buried you about waist deep with your hands at your side so you couldn't lift them and defend yourself at all. And once you had been properly confined, then they would throw rocks at you and begin fracturing you until they killed you. And to kill somebody with a rock, you've got to throw a rock pretty hard. And so the person, in order to do that, you would likely need to remove the cloak that you would be wearing that was normal in the first century to to wear. And so we see it, the first stoning, the first killing of a Christian is this man named Stephen, and there's somebody there who's gathering everyone's cloaks. I mean, if you go to a Christmas party next month, you show up at someone's house and they're gathering your winter coats, who is that person? They're the host. They're the host. Saul is hosting and presiding over the first martyr, this man named Stephen. And it says when when Stephen was martyred, Saul approved of the killing. Now, we need to imagine what it would have been like to be a Christian knowing Saul was around. Stephen was one of the deacons, so I love him, but I want you to imagine Will McKee one of our deacons, he's in code 45 right now, he works for the children's ministry too. If Will McKee had been martyred, had been stoned two weeks ago, how would you feel about being here right now? How would you feel about congregating and worshiping right now if you knew that the person who stoned him, who killed him, actually had papers from the authorities to continue doing what he was doing? How would you feel about being here right now? It's so easy for us sometimes to to not imagine what it was actually like for Christians then. Do you see the language that's used about Saul? In verse three, it says Saul was ravaging the church. The only other place that that word is used in the Bible is Psalm 80 to describe a wild boar ravaging a vine. Like Saul, he was beast-like in his commitment to ravaging the church. And it says he entered house after house. Saul wasn't coming to doors being like, hello, anyone home? Not doing that. Saul was kicking down doors. And it says he drug away men and women. Again, imagine that. Some of those women were, were likely probably asking for mercy and that they might stay at home and be with their children. 
Some of those men were likely asking for mercy that they might stay at home with their families and with their wives. And Saul was entering house after house and taking people away so that they might be killed. Saul, this is who he is. Did you see in verses 13 and 14 what Ananias' response is to this plan that God gives him? There's not a lot of other places in the Bible where someone is having a vision and they start debating with God. God's like, all right, Ananias, here's your plan, here's your vision. Go to Saul. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you know who that is? You want me to go to him? That's how bad Saul was. And yet, this unlikely convert is not only met on an intellectual level, an emotional level, but also on a moral level. God converts him despite how unlikely he is to be converted because of his morality. Saul had done horrible things. He was a genocidal murderer. He was a terrorist of the Christian church. That's who Saul was. And he doesn't shy away from admitting that. Listen to how he describes himself later in the book of Acts. This is Acts 26. He says, um, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. He's like trying to catch them. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's Saul. He's a sinner. He's a murderer. So how was he converted? Second point, what converts Saul? God does. It's all God. Jesus shows up and he moves towards this person who is literally not only moving away from God, but moving towards murdering God's people. Jesus shows up and he shows him grace. And he converts Saul again. He meets Saul on an academic level, an emotional level, and a moral level. Think about it academically. Saul gets objective truth. Saul gets to see that Jesus of Nazareth is factually risen from the dead. It blows up his paradigm. It blows up what he understands about who God is. That Jesus is alive. You know, Christianity, we're, we're the only world religion who believes our founder is still alive. He's alive. And Saul now has to deal with this paradigm-shifting fact, this fact that Jesus is resurrected. And the same is true for us. Jesus is alive. How do we explain, how do we explain this story of the resurrection pervading all over the world? Well, one thing we know, and this is, I, I think this is important to note, Christian historians and secular historians, non-Christian historians, everyone is in agreement that the tomb was empty. You won't find a historian worth their salt who's, who's going to argue that the tomb wasn't empty. 
Do you know why? Because Christianity never would have grown at all if the tomb had the bones of Jesus inside still. Just think about it. All the people, the, the birthplace of Christianity is in Jerusalem. It's in the neighborhood of where the bones are if they're still in the tomb. And so as these disciples are saying the Lord Jesus is resurrected and the Romans, the authorities know where the tomb is. They were guarding it. They know they can walk you to it. Go, check out the tomb. There's nothing in the tomb. The tomb is empty. And historian, all historians agree the tomb was empty. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, why? <laughs> why was the tomb empty? The tomb is empty. Why? And there's different explanations for that. One might be that Jesus wasn't actually dead. That he, you know, he had hung on a cross for hours and hours. He was bleeding. They pierced his side and blood and water flowed out, which would actually signify that he was dead. But let's say that he wasn't. Let's say that he was just really, really beat up. They put him in the tomb. He was in there for three days. And somehow, even though he's hungry, even though he's beat up, he was able to move the stone away, get past the Roman guards, and claim he was resurrected. Or maybe, maybe the disciples got him out. That's another possibility. These fishermen from the country who weren't very educated, who, by the way, are always afraid and are always messing up the plan, they somehow overcome soldiers from the world's most powerful empire of that day. They overcome them, they get the, they, they get the, the stone rolled away, and they get Jesus out, and the Romans never say anything about it. Maybe that's one of the options. Do you hear how outlandish both those are? And not only that, think about this. Maybe the disciples did that. Maybe they lied about it. Maybe they knew about this. And then you have to ask your question, well, why did they lie about it? Because they didn't get very much out of that lie. They didn't get extra money. They didn't get extra power. They didn't get extra wives. They got killed why would they give their lives for this lie these guys who go from being so afraid all the time to now having nerves of steel and an unflinching commitment to telling the world that Jesus is resurrected do you know why because Jesus is alive it's a fact it's an objective fact that we have to deal with and that's what Saul has to face here, that the tomb actually is empty because Jesus is alive. And there's a lot of people who attest to it. Saul writes, writes later, spoiler alert, his name is also Paul. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, do you know what? There's 500 people who saw Jesus raised from the dead. And he writes 1 Corinthians about 32 years after this happened, okay? And that's important. He didn't write and claim that this miracle happened like 400 years ago where no, one, no eyewitnesses could have attested and said like that didn't happen, which by the way, that's what a lot of other world religions do. 
and make religious claims, but the distance between the claim of when the miracle happened and when it was recorded is hundreds of years. And so there's no one who could be like, no, nah, it didn't happen. I, you know, I was there. It didn't happen. There's no one who can do that. But with Christianity, think about it this way. If I said, hey, did you know that 32 years ago in 1989 at the Texas A&M game, there actually wasn't any bands playing during halftime? There was this this man who did a tightrope from one side of Kyle Field to the other, and it was amazing, and everyone cheered. Could you disprove that without the internet? Yes. Because some of you were probably at that game, or if you weren't at the game, you definitely know at least one person who knows somebody who was at the game or who was at that game who could tell you, John Trapp is lying. I was at the game. I would have remembered the man on the tightrope. The same is true here. Christianity doesn't grow the way that it does if people could just go and ask, hey, like, Paul's saying that, like, Jesus appeared to 500 people, you were in the neighborhood, what do you think? And if everyone's saying, no, 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 liar, 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 didn't happen, Christianity doesn't grow because it's built on lies. But it's not. It's built on a fact that Jesus is risen. And Saul now has to deal with this fact, and it totally reorients his life. But not only is he converted on an intellectual level, he's converted on an emotional level. You see what Jesus says to Saul, his first words to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the Christians in Jerusalem? It's not what he says. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this is a whole other sermon. I'm not going to preach it. Don't worry. But Saul can't get over this concept that what happens to Christians also Jesus identifies with and experiences alongside Christians. And it's called the theology or the doctrine of union with Christ. That we are so brought into the life of God by our faith and by what he has done for us that what is true of us becomes true of Jesus. Our suffering he takes on himself. Our sin he takes on himself. And what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. We're united to his righteousness. And we're saved. Saul can't get over that. He talks about it all the time in all the rest of the letters that he writes in the New Testament. We're united to Jesus. And some of you have gone through some really difficult trials the last couple weeks. Some of you are in a season of grief and you need to know that Jesus grieves with you because he's united to you. Some of you feel persecuted. Jesus identifies with you in that. It's like it's happening to him. And he so cares to remove it one day fully and finally that he unites us to himself. He gives us what he deserves, which is salvation. And he takes what we deserve, which is our sin. And this converts Saul on an emotional level, but also Jesus saves Saul on a moral level. Or you could say Jesus saves Saul despite his immorality. Because Saul is a massive sinner. He's got it all wrong about who Jesus is, about who God is, and he's killing God's people. It's why Saul later writes in Romans 5, 8, 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our hope is not that we somehow cleaned ourselves up and figured things out and started moving towards God in faith and then he died for us and then he decided to receive us and let us in. It's while we were rebelling against him, while we were his enemies, while we hated him, Christ died for us. My, uh, my old youth pastor, he actually made me want to become a pastor. He used to talk about this with us. And he said, guys, grace isn't amazing until your sin is. Grace won't be amazing to you until you see the amazing debt that you have before God, before his throne, and yet that he meets you with grace. Saul is converted despite his immorality. So what? Well, maybe you're a Christian here this morning and maybe you're sitting there thinking, ooh, I really wish that friend of mine who's an unlikely convert was here this morning. Man, should have invited him this week. I'll send him the podcast. We have a podcast, by the way. Check it out. Anyway, I want to send, I want to send him that. When we do that, I think sometimes we forget ourselves. It's good to want... It's good to want your friends to hear the good news of Jesus. But sometimes we forget that it's not just our friends at work or in our neighborhood who are the unlikeliest of converts. We are. We are the unlikeliest of converts. We're just as unlikely of a convert as Saul. And yet God loves you. He has shown grace to you. Not because of what you've done, but by your faith in what Jesus has done on your behalf. And it's all grace. Do you know what this means? I mean, a couple so what's for you if you're a Christian. So what does this mean? One thing is that this means like we should be the most humble people. We're not, by the way. Mess that up a lot. That should humble us. We should be the most humble people. Because what we actually believe is that we weren't saved based on any merit, based on anything that we did. It's all God's grace. And so our posture towards our friend who disagrees with us, our posture towards our political enemy who disagrees with us should be love and grace. Because that's what Jesus told us to do. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Thank goodness Jesus did that because otherwise we wouldn't be saved. He loved his enemies. He was praying for those who persecuted him while he was on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And God answered that prayer and saved all of those people. He saved many people who crucified him. We see that earlier in the text. Remember that? We learned that? This is who God is. He saves the unlikeliest of converts like us. I think this is beautiful, this beautiful moment when Ananias, poor Ananias, he's so afraid, he's like debated with God and lost, you know. And now he's, he's going to Judas's house and Saul's in there waiting. He's probably like wondering, is Saul about to like jump out of some corner? Like what's going on? And he walks in there and do you, do you see what he calls Saul? He could have said, murderer, Saul, you killed my friend Stephen. He says, brother, Saul. He calls him his brother. 
we can only do that when we've been humbled by the grace of God for us. When we see that we are just in need of, as in need of, of grace as our neighbors and that they can become our brothers and sisters in Jesus when they receive the same grace that we did, that we didn't deserve. It humbles us. That's what God's grace does for us. And if you're not a Christian, man, I want you to know that this is, this is for you. If you would come to Jesus, it's for you. And you need to deal with the fact that he's alive. I really believe Jesus is alive right now. And I believe that there's a lot of reasons for you to believe that. But if you're not a Christian too, can I warn you? Because this will wreck your life. That's kind of what happens to Saul. Listen to what he says later in 2 Corinthians. He describes what his life was like after converting. He says, I experienced far more imprisonments, countless beatings. I was often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety, of my anxiety for all the churches. That's what Saul's life is like after this. Why does he do it? Because Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. It's a fact. And Saul knows that this life is a vapor. It comes and goes. All of us are going to be somewhere in 150 years. Our life is so short. But Jesus is alive. It's a fact. And his grace is held out to anyone who would come to him. It's an invitation. You know what? all the suffering, all the persecution, all the hardship that, by the way, he identifies with you in and he's with you in, it's worth it because he's alive. So let's pray to him now. Lord, we give you thanks that you hold out grace to sinners like us. Help us to believe it and help us to walk in light of it. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.